special guest, Dr. Redgrave. Uh, Dr. Redgrave, can you start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. And uh, first, I want to say thanks for having <laughs> me this evening. This is a, a pleasure to, to talk to you guys. Thanks for joining us. So I am a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins, where I do a few things. Being on the faculty usually means that you have, I don't know, two or three or four part-time jobs. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I help take care of patients with eating disorders mm-hmm. um, and other psychiatric illnesses, but primarily eating disorders. And I do that on the inpatient service and our partial hospital program and then in the outpatient clinic as well. So that's my clinical work. A big chunk of my time is devoted to helping direct the psychiatry residency. So I am the director for residency education, which means uh, that from an education point of view in terms of training the psychiatry residents, the the buck stops with me, (laughs) uh, for better or for worse. Um, I also have some scholarly work ongoing. So uh, my... I've done different things in my research career. I've done some neuroimaging of patients with anorexia and, and some with bulimia. Um, and I've helped collaborate on some studies of feeding in, in animals. But mostly what we've been working on over the last 10 or 15 years or so that I've been involved with is looking at clinical outcomes of patients who come to our program to get treated for eating disorders, primarily anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, but also binge eating disorder and other eating disorders, which we can maybe talk about. So Dr. Redgrave, uh, you've been doing a lot of work with eating disorders, it sounds like, for some time now. Uh, What led to your interest in eating disorders specifically across the possibilities within psychiatry? So I trained here at Hopkins... And one of the nice things about the residency training program is that you get exposed to lots of different kinds of specialty treatments. So I had an experience as a second-year resident taking care of patients with eating disorders, and I, I, I loved it. Then, then I did um, some additional sort of extracurricular experiences. I was, I helped run an eating disorder group with Dr. Guarda, uh, which is Angela Guarda, who's the the head of the eating disorder program. Mm -hmm. And I'm the assistant director of that as well. So did the outpatient group and started picking up outpatients and decided that I wanted to make a career of it. In retrospect, I think there are a few things that I really love about working with patients with eating disorders. I like to help patients change their behaviors and eating disorders are disorders of behavior Mm -hmm. and I think we're going to talk more about that later in the discussion but I also really liked the combination of mind and body eating disorders are 
fascinating to me and to my colleagues, I think, in part because eating is involves a series of choices and actions that have an effect on the body, which in turn then affects the way we engage in the next round of eating and over time then has an effect, a deeper effect on the body and so forth. And I think that, that makes it a very rich place to work. Mm-hmm. Also, I happen to enjoy working with young adults. And so I like working with teenagers. I like working with, with, with young adults. We take care of patients, even preteens occasionally, all the way up into to patients in their 70s. But if I had to pick one age group to work with, it would be folks probably around the time where eating disorders are most prevalent. So that was a good match as well. And there's lots of psychological issues that folks are wrestling with at this time of life, like Mm -hmm. who am I and what do I want to do with my life and how do I overcome my worries about growing up in this world and and make a meaningful contribution and so forth. And so there's a lot of meaning involved uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy that. That's awesome. Before we move forward, would you be okay with giving us a definition of the different types of eating disorders and just what an eating disorder is in general? Sure. So I think probably the the two eating disorders that your listeners are going to be most familiar with Mm -hmm. are anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. Mm -hmm. Both of those eating disorders are characterized by recurrent problem behaviors with eating that are associated with an underlying fear of fatness. At least that's the technical term that gets used, although mm-hmm. it's different for different people. So some people are preoccupied with a particular number on the scale, others with the way they look in the mirror, others with how their clothes feel. And and so they patients then begin to do things to alter their eating habits And over time, those habits become more and more ingrained and can have lots and lots of functional consequences like having to drop out of school or causing problems in marital relationships and things like that, as well as lots of physical problems up to and including really severe problems or death. Those are the two eating disorders I think that people recognize. Mm -hmm. Anorexia is primarily characterized by an underweight state so you get underweight either by failing to eat enough or by going by really severe dieting. Mm-hmm. But it might actually be weight loss from another thing, like mm-hmm. another, like a, an illness, like infectious mononucleosis that that causes very large lymph nodes and prevents you from eating. So you might lose mm-hmm. weight just for a medical reason, but then fail to gain weight appropriately mm-hmm. after that. So again, anorexia is primarily characterized by being underweight. Patients with bulimia are normal weight or possibly slightly overweight, but they engage in recurrent episodes of binge eating. And that's when you lose control of how much you eat. You eat a very large amount of food and you have a sense of loss of control at the same time. And so recurrent episodes of binge eating with some inappropriate mechanism that compensates for the fact that you just ate a very large amount of food in a short period of time. So typically that might be vomiting, it might be periods of fasting, it might be exercise, might be using laxatives. One thing that is a little confusing in the way that diagnostic criteria are written is that you can engage in binge eating and 
or vomiting or other eating behaviors in anorexia as well. So the thing that matters most about anorexia is you have to be underweight. Mm. So if you're underweight, mm. you have anorexia if you're engaging in, in any of these behaviors. But, but if you're not, then you, then you have uh, bulimia. There are a couple of other categories of illness. Well, there are two more that are, that are <laughs> worth mentioning. The first is binge eating disorder, mm-hmm. which is a condition in which patients engage in recurrent episodes of binge eating on average weekly or more frequently than that over a period of a couple of months. And then they don't engage in any inappropriate compensatory mechanism. So they're not, mm. they're not vomiting or using laxatives or over-exercising or fasting. So that's binge eating disorder. And then, and then the fourth kind, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's worth mentioning, is something called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Mm. The initials of that are A-R-F-I-D. So it gets called ARFID <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> And the way to think about that condition, I think, is that it's like anorexia or possibly even bulimia, but particularly like anorexia, except that it's not driven by a fear of fatness. It's driven by some other anxiety or physical pain or fear that causes people to not eat or to vomit. And it's probably becoming more common. Mm-hmm. It's certainly the case that we are seeing seeing it more frequently in our program. It's a little hard to know whether that means mm-hmm. that it's actually truly increasing in the in the population. So folks with this thing called ARFID actually often have lots of GI symptoms and pain. They've met many times been to GI doctors mm-hmm. and and feel stuck in some of the same ways that patients with anorexia feel, mm. but they don't have the same sort of body image and shape and weight concerns that patients with anorexia have. Okay. Got it. Interesting. So that ends up being a lot more about the anxiety about the physical consequences of eating the food rather in terms of the discomfort associated with it? Yes. It's, so it's often anxiety. Yeah, exactly. It's often anxiety about discomfort caused by mm. eating in there's one particular kind that was described a long time ago where in which people become fearful about having food stuck in their throat mm. this is a condition that's known as globus hystericus but it's mm-hmm. now now would be considered a form of arfid mm. so met a person once whose father had that had happened to actually mm-hmm. and he uh, he lost a hundred pounds because he got had gotten at one point a chicken bone stuck in his throat, wow. and then became terrified that he would be, that he would choke. Wow! Lost a lot of weight and had tremendous trouble. Had to quit his job and so forth. Wow. Uh, he was not my patient ever, but mm-hmm. so we are seeing that I think in part because at Johns Hopkins we are able to take care of patients with lots of medical issues in mm-hmm. addition to their more psychological or behavioral issues, and mm-hmm. so. Patients tend to come to us sometimes for that. Hmm. Yeah, and that's something that I've noticed is that because the disordered eating can lead to so many medical consequences, it's something that's got to be really hard to treat on a traditional psych unit. I think it's both hard to treat on a traditional psych unit and hard to treat effectively on a traditional (laughs) medical unit, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think it's because the behaviors people end up getting stuck in, in this sort of habitual pattern of the behaviors. Mm-hmm. The behaviors are actually rewarding. Yeah. And that might sound kind of gross. That's something like mm-hmm. vomiting or laxative abuse could become rewarding. And I think... 
Well, I don't think it, it, that's you know, too foreign to anybody who's ever been ill and then vomited and had the feeling that whatever was causing the, the pressure is gone or anyone who's had bowel movement that relieved a lot of discomfort. Like these things are certainly the absence of of a sensation in the, the gut lumen can be reinforcing. Yeah, absolutely. It's also often the case that our patients feel a sense of shame and guilt that they are doing the behaviors, but so they, it's a little uncomfortable sometimes to have the initial conversation about reward. So it feels better in some way, in a way that leads to the behavior appearing again. Yeah. It can be complicated to be stuck in a behavior mm-hmm. yeah. in the same way that it can be complicated to be stuck in an addiction. Yeah. 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 And there's a lot of parallels, I think, drawn between those two fields. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of the eating disorder treatment at Hopkins because my understanding, and we don't need to go deep in depth, but my understanding is the way we're doing things here is somewhat different than what's done at a lot of other units in the country. In particular, I thought it was really interesting how the cornerstone of our treatment is this eating protocol based on eating real food in normal amounts and tending to avoid things like putting people on feeding tubes and things of this nature. I was wondering if you could speak to your knowledge regarding how that came about and how you've seen that benefit the patients here. So most programs have some protocol that helps guide treatment. Mm -hmm. I think having a protocol helps reassure patients that there's a plan and also can help because sometimes patients find themselves wanting to negotiate all the little parts Mm -hmm. of their treatment. I think out of a very understandable desire to be more physically comfortable or more emotionally comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very helpful psychologically to say to the person, I understand that you're suffering, but Mm -hmm. we really need to stick to the plan. Mm -hmm. And this is what the plan is. So I think most programs have a protocol. You pointed out a couple of things, uh, a couple of ways in which our program differs. One way is that we don't use feeding tubes. Mm -hmm. I think there are programs that use feeding tubes. There are some programs who use feeding tubes for patients when they're not gaining weight Mm -hmm. quickly Mm -hmm. enough. And then there are others that just do it for everybody. Mm -hmm. This is a tube that goes in through the nostril and down into the stomach and food then is passed in that way. And for some programs, for example, you might eat a normal portion of food during the day and then all of your weight gain calories, all of the calories that you would need in order to actually gain weight mm-hmm. would come in overnight mm-hmm. by feeding tube. That's a not, that's not uncommon. As you point out, we don't do that. And we ask our patients to eat all of the food. Now, some of it's in food and some of it is in dietary supplements like mm-hmm ensure the equivalent and we do that in part because as eating disorders develop often one of the things that happens is that the kinds of food that folks eat becomes more and more restricted Mm -hmm. what is acceptable and as that process unfolds over time patients get more and more rigid in their thinking and more and more anxious when they are confronted with a food that isn't on the sort of list of acceptable foods. Even patients who engage in binging and vomiting often sort of have two classes of food in their mind. So they'll have foods that are sort of safe, which is a word that often gets used, and other foods that are their binge foods. Even though they're getting calories from both, 
there's a, there's a lower anxiety associated with the safe foods and a higher level of anxiety associated with the binge foods. Yeah. And the binge foods always lead to an episode of vomiting or laxatives or what have you. Okay, so one of the goals of treatment not only then is to restore weight and interrupt these behaviors because mm-hmm. the behaviors are inherently unhealthy. One of the other goals then is to help patients break down those sort of internal, highly ritualized, rigid rules about what's an, an okay food and what's not an okay food. Mm-hmm. And the way to do that is to use a technique that in other parts of psychiatry is called exposure and response. And that technique involves making a list of things that make a person anxious and gradually exposing yourself to that anxiety-provoking stimulus and mm-hmm. then not engaging in the response, which is typically sort of a fight-or-flight kind of response. Yeah. So the example I use for, with patients is claustrophobia, like, for example, a fear of being in an elevator. And so you might do kind of a graded, like a graded treatment with patients in which the first time they just push the elevator button and then you're done. That's the treatment for that day. And the next day might be you push the elevator button, the doors open, you get in and then you get out. And then the next time you ride up a floor and the next time you ride up two floors and you just do it over and over again until being in an elevator is no longer associated with the same very gut or visceral response of Mm -hmm. fear and and aversion. So we feel that there is a rationale then for mm-hmm. really eating all of the food, consuming it by mouth rather than having it simply passed in. That's why we do that. And not every program uses feeding tubes, though. I mm-hmm. think one of the ways in, then that we differ from some programs that don't use feeding tubes is that many programs, I think, will tailor the amount of calories prescribed mm-hmm. to a certain amount of weight gain. Hmm. And we have a fairly fixed schedule of mm-hmm. increases in the calories that we can be flexible about if someone's having too much discomfort or medical mm-hmm. problems and so forth. But we recognize sort of an important fact about the way some people gain weight such that they're going to put weight on very quickly initially, mm. particularly patients who engage in a lot of vomiting or a lot of laxative abuse will be very dehydrated when they come in. And so when they start to eat normally, they tend to retain a lot of water. And so if you only go by the number on the scale, it looks like they're gaining weight very rapidly. And in fact, they are, but some of that's fluid that's going to come off later. And so if you are relying just on the scale to provide your guide as to how many calories to prescribe, you're going to actually under-prescribe calories. Okay. And so so you'll actually, over the course of the whole admission, you'll get someone to gain weight more slowly. I don't know if that's clear. I think that makes sense. That's been one of the things that sort of bothers me about our reliance in medicine in general on the scale. Because as Kavita and I have both found mm-hmm. out, and you earlier in your time at Bayview, weight is so dependent on factors outside of body fat. I mean, it's definitely useful over the long term, but there's just so many factors that play into it that can be really frustrating when you're trying to fine-tune whatever your routine is or your patient's routine could be. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Because, I mean, in people with heart failure, you can tell very, very little about their body fat content with, from the weight alone because God knows how much weight is pooling around their tissues because their heart's not pumping it back quickly enough. And I wish we had a better way, frankly, other than having to put people in MRI machines to, to measure the body fat percentage properly. I think the weight is a pretty good measure. And one of the things that uh, Sani Maksumi did, who's a postdoctoral fellow with us, as part of her PhD work, was actually able to show that these different trajectories mm-hmm. and to, of weight gain. And so we kind of know some people gain weight 
slow and steady. Some people gain weight moderately. And then other folks have this mm-hmm. sort of very steep curve mm-hmm. at the beginning that flattens out later on in their hospitalization. And so when that's happening, we can provide reassurance because it's very anxiety-provoking for patients because they usually know that they're gaining weight very rapidly. Mm-hmm. They yeah. can kind of feel it in a way. And then we can reassure them that, say, say that this is fluid and you're going to eliminate it later once your body is sort of adjusted to what's going on. Yeah. And another thing that's come up is that when the body fat does start to reaccumulate, they see that it's more in the metabolically active areas, like around the abdomen and around the face, which are cosmetically, of course, really focal points. Yeah. And my understanding is that it does find its way to other less bothersome areas over time to some extent. At least that's what we tell people. Can I tell you about the Minnesota starvation experiment? Sure. (laughs) Because that sounds kind of gruesome, but it's actually extremely useful, it turns out. Hmm. So at the end of World War II, Europe had been devastated by slash and burn policies at the European bombs, Allied bombing and the German bombing and so forth. Totally destroyed, right? So They needed to do a lot of physical labor, and there wasn't a lot of food around because of slash-and-burn policies of the crops. So Mm -hmm. they needed to understand how are we going to be able to refeed this population that's going to have to do a lot of really physically demanding work. So they asked this guy Ansel Keys at the University of Minnesota to study this, and he in turn asked for a group of volunteers to participate in the study and these were conscientious objectors who have religious or ethical objections to, to fighting. Many of them were sort of ambulance drivers and so forth, or they, mm-hmm. did, they did various civil engineering projects back in the States while the war was going on and so forth. So there were more than 100 volunteers. They picked 36 of them. These were a very, very carefully screened psychologically, medically, physically healthy. They were all men. And they, they were put on a diet of 1,800 calories a day which is slightly below mm-hmm. the recommended daily allowance of calories, but only slightly below. But they were also asked to walk three miles per day. And mm-hmm. over the course of about three months, they lost down to an anorexic weight, to a body mass index wow. of about 17 and a half. And during this time, Dr. Keyes and, and his minions were doing all kinds of measurements of skin fold and psychological testing mm-hmm. and blood work and so forth. Very, very highly detailed study. And then they refed them and they used various combinations of food. There were four Mm -hmm. different refeeding groups. That's actually less important. What's really fascinating if you're an eating disorder doctor Mm -hmm. is knowing what it was like for these men to go through that. So these men then exhibited a Mm -hmm. whole host of behaviors that we see in our patients. (laughs) They cut food up very small. They ate very slowly. They hoarded condiments, they collected cookbooks and cooking implements. Six, developed binge eating, which is really interesting. Four, had to terminate the study and be hospitalized psychiatrically, even though, again, they have been screened. And so one interpretation of that is, gee, maybe these guys weren't screened that well, but Anselm was a highly detail-oriented guy. And I think (laughs) instead the interpretation should be that starvation is incredibly psychologically Mm. stressful Hmm. in addition to being very physically stressful. So one of the things that we learned from that, we learned many, many things from Mm -hmm. this study. One of the things that we learned was that when you lose weight, you lose your fat mass first and then your muscle, and you put it back on in the reverse. So Uh. So you put all the weight back on essentially as fat. And as you point out, That's abdominal fat and in the face, metabolically active areas, as you say. And then over the course of about a six-month period, 
then the relative proportions of fat and muscle get back to normal. Mm, That's really cool. Yeah, it's way cool, actually. It's also cool because before that, in psychiatry, the feeling was patients with anorexia, all of these abnormal behaviors that were exhibited were evidence of how psychologically abnormal the patients were to begin with. Hmm. And so it was really nice to see, in fact, that if you take anyone and Mm -hmm. starve them to an anorexic weight, they'll start to exhibit lots of these really unusual behaviors. And that then allows us to reassure patients and their families that if you can get past this, a Mm -hmm. lot of these obsessional thoughts that Mm -hmm. are on your mind will will ease up and your apathy will improve and your lack of energy and all of that. Yeah, and that goes along with one of the really striking things about the eating disorders program, which is even Mm -hmm. though we are a psychiatric unit in a hospital in the proud Western tradition, (laughs) we do very little with medication, at least at first. I think largely because of what you're saying, you can't know what their underlying psychiatric condition is while they're in a starvation state. Mm. And in fact, when you try to study medication in groups of patients with anorexia, Mm -hmm. what you see is either the medicines don't do any good or patients drop out of the study. So Mm -hmm. it's actually very difficult from an evidence-based medicine point of view to say that any medicines are strictly for anorexia are worth prescribing. Now, again, we use GI medicines to treat GI discomfort, but most of the treatment is is psychological, is behavioral and, and psychotherapeutic. Yeah, and it's refreshing to see that as somebody who was initially interested in psychiatry because Mm -hmm. of the way that you can, in some cases, talk people well and not have to lean entirely on your medications. Mm -hmm. From what I'm hearing so far, Dr. Redgrave, what you said about eating disorders really having that linkage between mind and body, it really resonates with me. The fact that initially I was going to ask you more questions about, well, how does it affect the body? But now hearing your point that not only does starvation or disordered eating affect all of the different organs in your body and the way that your body uses energy. But it sounds like just that act of being starved also affects your mind, which is already grappling with a disorder of behavior. So it it seems like this really terrible feedback loop. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's so it's not surprising perhaps that patients sometimes need to be in the hospital for part of their treatment because Mm -hmm. it's very hard to stop behaviors that are rewarding and that when you engage in them more, Mm -hmm. you become more anxious, more depressed, more obsessional in your thinking. And with those, those things then make it hard, harder to stop. So there's Mm -hmm. all kinds of those, those, those kind of feedback loops. Can you talk a little bit more about the body aspect of it? In the hospital and at outpatient treatment centers, what kinds of things that you have to monitor for in these patients who have eating disorders, whether you have to look at their heart or look at other things? And does the act of eating on a more regular and regular calorie intake as well, does that... Is the absorption of those calories affected by their state of starvation? Like for those people, if they ate the normal amount of calories, is it harder for them to absorb the energy from those calories or is it the same as if anyone had lost weight and was going to gain it again? So that's actually a really interesting question. Some of your listeners may, may be wondering about the gut microbiome, for example, yeah. in patients who are starved. I think that's a really interesting question. There are some people working on that. I don't think we yeah. yet, yet have quite clear answers. Yeah. 
one of the things that we do know is that patients with anorexia who are just sitting still mm-hmm. have actually very slow metabolism. So mm-hmm. they don't use much energy at all when they're just resting. But the minute you get up and move around, your metabolism becomes very inefficient. So you actually start burning calories very quickly. Oh. Again, it's this idea. So it's hard to gain weight because many patients, not all, but many have a, a restlessness, an excess movement kind of that you can see foot tapping and kind of shaking. That's actually in some of the earliest descriptions of anorexia mm-hmm. from the 1600s or in, that include this kind of motor restlessness. So that's burning mm-hmm. a lot of calories as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether it's absorption, yeah. although our patients have lots and lots of bloating and mm-hmm. constipation and the gut slows down. One of the things mm-hmm. that happens to, that perpetuates the eating disorder is that it takes a lot of energy. You burn a lot of calories just running this long muscular tube that moves food through. And so when you are engaged in binging and vomiting or when you're engaged in starvation Uh and you've kind of now disrupted that, I think sort of as an energy preservation kind of mode, Mm -hmm. the body kind of shuts down and that, but then when you're trying to turn that around and you have to eat more than normal calories, you fill up early in a meal, mm-hmm. your stomach doesn't empty out appropriately and your your small bowel and your large bowel move very slowly. So wow. our patients have a lot of very real physical discomfort yeah. during the refeeding process. So that again, we try to help them with as much as possible with medicines, but we can't make that all go away, which is another thing that makes it hard to do on your own. Got yeah. it. Yeah, it seems like the deck's really stacked against people with eating disorders if they're trying to climb out of it without a lot of help. And the good news is that there are only some people who are susceptible to developing disorders like anorexia or bulimia. So probably about a half a percent of women over the course of their lifetime, there's a genetic component to that Mm -hmm. risk so that if your sister or your mother Mm -hmm. has an eating disorder, you are at a higher risk for developing an eating disorder. But that also means that if you don't have eating disorders in your family, then you're at a slightly lower risk. Mm -hmm. After all, many, many people, particularly many women, diet, often even when they don't need to, but dieting, which is often sort of the first behavior that then leads to an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. But, But most people who diet never develop an eating disorder. Got it. Yeah, and that's actually, that leads me into something that I found really interesting when I came on the service is, I guess, going in, I always figured that societal norms had a huge role to play. I mean, we've got pretty clearly an unhealthy (laughs) standard of thinness, especially toward women in Mm -hmm. our society. But it sounds like, in spite of that, anorexia tends to be similarly prevalent across time and across cultures, is my understanding. Yes, there's some debate about that. And at least at some point, there was a thought that the prevalence of bulimia in particular actually had kind of grown and was maybe now subsiding. But the prevalence of anorexia does appear to be relatively Mm -hmm. stable Mm -hmm. over time, which does suggest that although it's embedded in this social context Mm -hmm. that is so image focused and it seems like that would really make a huge difference it at least raises the question of of whether it is actually playing a causal role i'm not sure although obviously it's important to talk about during the treatment because 
I was just running group the other day, and our patients were talking about, well, this is society tells us we have to be thin, and how do we ignore that Mm -hmm. message? And even though it may not have caused the problem, it for sure is a burden for young women. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, even among patients outside of the eating disorder population, the number of people who think they are heavy when they have no reason to think so from an objective standpoint is really disconcerting, especially in a society where we do have a problem with overweight and obesity. It's like, oh, how have we gotten so far from having any kind of like reason or well-adjusted perception on the topic? There's an old paper looking at the weight for height measurement, basically BMI, of Playboy Playmates and Miss America contestants. Mm-hmm. And you, if you graph it over time, it goes down and down and wow. down and eventually surpasses or drops below the, the weight threshold for anorexia. Oh. Wow. And so I think your point that we have this, uh, this thin ideal in, a, mm-hmm. in Western culture is, is absolutely accurate and... I think it's deeply ironic, and you know that that it, this is happening now at the same time. Of course, that they, that more and more folks are struggling with obesity as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it seems like there might be a slight reversal in that trend. I mean, on social media now, there's this idea of being thick with two C's, which I believe we've somehow <laughs> talked about before on the <laughs> podcast. But I mean, I do think that somehow we've got to let the pendulum swing back to something a little more healthy, if for no other reason than to reduce the number of triggers we're throwing at people who are vulnerable. Yeah. And, I mean, it, this can't be good for depression and other conditions either. Yes. I don't know. Aside from your genes and also having family members who have eating disorders, are there any other big risk factors for developing an eating disorder? Like, if you had generalized anxiety disorder, is that a risk factor for an eating disorder? It's a great question. The prevalence of anxiety disorders Mm -hmm. is increased in Mm -hmm. family members of women with eating disorders. Not clear that there Mm -hmm. is a causal relationship, but there's an association there for sure. And that's sort of, again, anxiety disorders of all kinds. So one of the things that you hear in the popular press a lot is the the word control. That is, Mm -hmm. that eating disorders are about control. Uh And I think that... There's a lot to say about this, but one yeah. thing to say about it is that I I don't think that eating disorders are really about anything. Mm. I don't think addictions are about anything. Addictions mm-hmm. are drinking too much or using too much, you know, substance of whatever kind. Eating disorders are about disordered eating, but there are a lot of themes that emerge, and mm-hmm. one of them is control. But I think in part that is because patients who develop eating disorders tend to be anxious, and so. Feeling out of control is a terrible feeling, and if your capacity to feel anxiety is mm-hmm. elevated, then you're more likely to to feel out of control, and, yeah. and then that becomes associated with part of that sort of psychological picture of the eating disorder in general. That's a very interesting point you make, because I feel like in popular culture, eating disorders are very frequently portrayed as somebody who's a perfectionist, a type A, just trying to control everything. And I think as I've been hearing you and Cody talk more today, it seems like it is, as you said, so much more than that. And it's really this, that terrible feedback loop that we talked about versus somebody trying to nitpick about every aspect of how they eat. Yeah, I think perfectionism is definitely one of the personality 
rates that is associated with development of eating disorders. So you Mm -hmm. do see that. But again, I think it's a little difficult because when a person is in the middle of an eating disorder, their personality becomes more extreme Mm -hmm. anyway. And so people certainly look more perfectionistic perhaps Mm -hmm. than they would be if they were taking care of themselves, if they were healthy. And a related thought I had was that although it's absolutely an unhealthy behavior, to practice some of the disordered eating behaviors reliably does take a certain level of discipline, which Mm -hmm. would be much better applied other places. But I wonder if that's where some of the personality comes in, because if you were somebody who just doesn't have the conscientiousness to restrict routinely, (laughs) you wouldn't develop anorexia. You would just be, you'd get some other condition of disordered eating that was less extreme, perhaps less noticeable. Yeah, I think that's, I assume that you guys have met patients who will say, oh, I tried cocaine, but I didn't like, you know, but it Mm -hmm. made me feel a certain way. So I, you know, I really liked it, but it also made me feel bad. I think there are ways in which starvation, you know, starvation feels terrible. So you have to be able to tolerate feeling terrible for this longer term goal. And that is a feature of certain kinds of personalities, like, like a perfectionist personality. So I think it's a great point, Cody. Yeah. Which begs the question why we don't see this in like everybody in medical school and Oh yeah, <laughs> with delayed gratification and all that. When I give the talk to the medical students, <laughs> when I start talking about personality as a risk factor, yeah, I, you know, there's a certain amount of discomfort in the medical student audience because they a certain amount, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, because these are traits commonly seen in medical students. <laughs> so something I thought would be interesting and useful to discuss is a lot of people out there may sooner or later run into either themselves or someone they care about having an eating disorder. How would you advise somebody in the community to approach this, maybe open a conversation about it? How would you advise them to try to support someone in their lives who they suspect has an eating disorder in a tactful way? This is always a delicate matter. Mm -hmm. And I think it depends a lot on who the person is and what your relationship with them is often eating disorders build their own defenses for lack of a better term. I don't necessarily want to over personify the eating disorder, but Mm -hmm. some people can become pretty defensive if you ask them about what's going on. And there are lots of reasons for that. They are again, somewhat secretly embarrassed perhaps or ashamed or they might feel like, look, I've got a handle on this. I'm working on it, and I don't need you interfering. So mm-hmm. I think there is some risk, frankly, if you bring it up. But for every patient I've met who talks about a conflict at some point with a friend or a loved one or family member, I also meet, I probably meet two or three patients who said, well, nobody said anything to me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, or my pediatrician said I was healthy weight or something. And so I think expressing concern can be, I used the word delicate before. I think it's mm-hmm. delicate in the sense that I think sometimes people do that, do it in sort of a laughing way or a joking mm-hmm. way or in a way that's very oblique. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably best to be straightforward, to not try to make light of it, although mm-hmm. that is often a very understandable uh, you know, instinct. Mm-hmm. I think to to say, I've noticed that you're 
losing weight or I've noticed that you go to the bathroom every mm-hmm. time we go out to eat right away afterwards and I just want to make sure you're okay. I'm worried that maybe you've got a problem with eating. Um, there's no perfect answer. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a really good question. It's an important question. And I do think in general it's better to say something than not say something, but also recognize yeah. that your gesture may not be received in the, you know, in the way that you intend. Yeah, it seems like there's a special level of stigma with, with this. And similar to addictions, I think that we see behavior as being more tightly yoked to who a person is than a disease like even a disease like depression or bipolar disorder. Because I, I guess people want to believe that they're in charge of what they're doing, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, I think to some extent we all have the fantasy that we decide things <laughs> and then we act accordingly <laughs> and that we are rational. And I think often we find ourselves doing things or having feelings or moving through life in a pretty irrational way and then making up stories afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh terrifying they were showing that one of these newer uh, studies with psychedelic microdosing is that it changes per- people's perception of time in a positive way they're actually able to like tune in and be more mindful ah. and we definitely have to talk about not only psychedelics but meditation in a big yes. big way over yeah. the coming uh, months to however long we're able to keep this going absolutely <laughs> I feel like there's one part of what you are giving as examples as well, Dr. Redgrave, that I wanted to highlight. I know sometimes through medical school and through residency, we're taught about how to best communicate with other people. And you were using I statements, which I thought was really nice because every time you said something, it was you talking about your concerns and your feelings and not putting an absolute on this hypothetical person you were talking to. And like you said, it's probably extremely challenging to talk to somebody who's in the middle of their eating disorder and, you know, can't see the the forest for the trees. But I think one small strategy is definitely to use the I statement instead of saying something like, you're too thin or you have a problem. Yes. Yeah. So to focus on the effect that that their behavior is having on you. I'm worried when I, when I see you, you know, this way or that way. And again, you know, if you don't know somebody, you know, shouldn't talk to them in an elevator or in the supermarket. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) God forbid. I mean, so, you know, I think people, because I have had that experience as well, people saying, you know, people have, you know, said Mm -hmm. things to me, you know, that, and that was, and that's just upsetting them for no, for no reason. But if you have a relationship with the person, and you use I statements. I think that's a that's, I think, a, an important emphasis. Yeah, that you've, that you were you've just made. doing it subconsciously <laughs> because you're you're on that level of communication now. <laughs> so, something I wanted to touch on as well is the prognosis of eating disorders because I don't know that it's universally aware just how dangerous these are. So, the outcomes, the prognosis for eating disorders vary a bit by diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And are a little hard to measure. That is, if you ask how someone is doing six months from now, you'll get one answer. But if you ask how, you know, how they're doing a year from now or five years from now or ten years from now, you might get very different answers because yeah. people sometimes are doing well for a period of time and then slip back. Or it might just take them a while to get well. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we see in the in the outcomes literature is that things change over time depending on when you actually ask the question, how are you Mm -hmm. doing now? 
So one thing that happens over time is that it becomes clear that you have an elevated, that if you have anorexia nervosa, you have an elevated risk of dying from that. And that is probably actually among the highest of, of all psychiatric illnesses. Probably anorexia and schizophrenia are the two most lethal psychiatric conditions. Mm-hmm. And so there's a number called the standardized mortality ratio, which is basically how likely are you to die from condition X or condition Y compared to people who are the same age as you are. And the standardized mortality ratio for anorexia is probably somewhere between six and nine, meaning that you're somewhere between six and nine times more likely to die than someone who's your age who doesn't mm. have anorexia. Wow. And, and that's extremely high. But it's not the whole picture. Most patients with anorexia can get better. And in fact, so, so if you follow people for 10 years, mm-hmm. something like 5% of patients will die from anorexia. But as you follow people for longer and longer, the percentage of people that is fully recovered also increases because partially, I think, because anorexia is a disease of younger people. And so Mm -hmm. as people mature, they are able to make healthier choices in ways that we don't fully understand. But that appears to be I don't want to equate in any way equate anorexia with Im- immaturity. That's not really the case, mm-hmm. but it develops in young people and things change. Mm-hmm. So b- bulimia it does not have the same very high mortality associated with it, but over a person's lifetime, it can be quite costly. And that in part is because bulimia often occurs with other psychiatric problems like depression or substance mm-hmm. abuse and uh, mm-hmm. things like that. So you can, so there's often a lot of things going on. It's, again, a quite a complicated picture. We are, I think, doctors in general are tasked with being hopeful for their patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, eating disorders cause patients to lose hope. And I am hopeful about my patient's prognosis for almost all of my patients. And I, and I feel very positively about the prospects for developing treatments and for... Uh, and for our, our ability to help folks, but but it's not always it's not always easy or straightforward. And some folks are st- stay chronically ill and never sort of reach their potential. Are there people who can have an eating disorder kind of go into remission where they've developed enough positive behaviors to any time they might feel like they're having that that negative thought about wanting to control their eating behaviors they're able to process it and you know let it go are there people like that who can successfully sort of have one or two episodes in their life where they have an eating disorder and they're getting treated and then have large periods of their life where they they aren't bothered by it or is it more common that you see people who have the ups and downs i think there's a whole mix actually okay excuse me so Patients with anorexia often can recover fully and not have to really wrestle with it. Okay. Um, probably 45% of patients with anorexia wow. are, in, are in that group. Hmm. About another third will have a more sort of on and off course. And, um, and, uh, and then the remaining 25-ish percent, mm-hmm. whatever the math leads us to, has a more kind of chronic uh, or downward, downward okay. course. And so, but... A substantial fraction of people have just the course that you you okay. describe, particularly folks that get into treatment early, and and those so those those folks tend to tend to do a little bit better. Mm-hmm. 
And that makes a lot of sense with what you were saying about the, this chicken and egg problem of you know, the starved state really perpetuating the psychiatric issues related to the eating disorder. Just, it sounds like just the act of refeeding is hugely therapeutic, especially if it can be maintained. Yeah, and it's very interesting in conditions like eating disorders, but also I think in conditions like addictions, one of mm-hmm. the things that we, one of the sort of holy grails of academic psychiatry is trying to figure out can we predict who's going to do well and mm-hmm. who's going to do poorly? For a long time in the eating disorders field, there was a concern that too much treatment would make people chronic, which I think is an interesting, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is an interesting way to view it. I think now there's much more sense that some people are going to have a more serious, more chronic, more severe mm-hmm. or enduring course, and those people need treatment, and so they get more treatment. But the idea that that somehow treatment is causing that, I think, is mm-hmm. is a slightly now old old fashioned idea, which I, I'm glad of. Yeah, I actually just saw a patient who, on the eating disorder service now, my understanding is that she had been struggling for decades, and now she's just finally starting to. Wow. Hit, I mean, I don't want to jinx anything. Yeah. But it sure looks like she's making some different choices for maybe the first time ever. Wow. So it's really something, I mean, and she's been in and out of treatment for a very long time. And that that we see as well, that sometimes something in the person's head, for lack of a better term, or sometimes something in their circumstances yeah. in their life helps them reevaluate the, the choices that they're making. And then mm-hmm. they're able to make choices from a different sort of point of view. Uh, the, one of the potential interesting treatments that may be on the horizon at some point in the future is the, is uh, psychedelics for treatment of patients with severe mm. and enduring eating disorder. <laughs> Pharmacologically augmented behavior change. <laughs> what? <laughs> right. Yeah. We, we're going to get Natalie Gukassian on the... Uh, she would be the one. The cast. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, we can't talk about the person that you're talking about, although I think I know at least one of two people it might be. And sometimes... She did have a, re- a circumstance change recently. Yeah, and I think that sometimes that can... And again, you hear the same thing from patients with addictions, that sometimes they've been, they do it for 20 years or 30 years, and then the penny drops, something happens, and they think, I can't, I can't do this anymore. A more trivial example is that my grandfather smoked a pipe for something like 50 or 60 years, and mm-hmm. he basically woke up one day and said, this is too expensive. Hmm. I don't think the cost of tobacco had increased dramatically, you know, yeah. but it reached some threshold for him and he just yeah. said, well, that's it. Yeah. You know, and tobacco is terribly addictive. Yeah. It does seem like a, a certain, uh, like there's just these inflection points for some people. Yes. Like a story I like to tell is my, my dad stopped smoking after decades because he had, he had a heart attack and the emergency department physician grabbed him by the shirt collar and said, you have just smoked your last cigarette. And wow. he smoked his last cigarette. And Dr. McHugh t- told a story about a patient who he saw in the emergency department after having, I think, a withdrawal seizure from alcohol and uh-huh. said, you really have to stop drinking. And he actually came back and found Dr. McHugh later and said, wow. I stopped drinking because you told me to stop drinking. And I, I, it's impossible <laughs> that, that, that that was the only time he had heard that. He was just ready to he hear it. He was ready to hear it. Yeah. yeah. 
and I hear that in psychotherapy all the time with yeah. patients. You, you carefully plant a seed, and then 18 months later, their hairstylist will say something to them. Yeah. And they thought, you know, this. I just had the most amazing experience. You're like, I said that to you. I said that very <laughs> thing to you 18 months ago. We're usually, it's just, it's we're, the nature of life. Yeah, we're usually on message more or less for <laughs> consistently. But yeah, it does seem like there's just a huge variation in people's yeah. uh, readiness to, to change. I think it makes me, it reminds me that sometimes my supervising attendings, they'll tell me, make sure that you talk to patients about smoking every time they come to the hospital because Mm -hmm. that's been shown to help people quit smoking. And, you know, sometimes you see somebody who's been smoking for, for over 25 years and it seems like they've been pretty consistent. And sometimes I wonder, I I do it, but I wonder, oh, is this really going to change what's happening? But after hearing this, I am inspired to continue because I might be that person that finally maybe, you know, that day that I talk to them about it, they're ready to hear it and to make a change. And we are terrible at predicting. We can't do this really in a rational way. And so we have to sort of do it at the, keep throwing the pasta at the wall until it's something, you know, until it sticks. Yeah, it's like it's like they're walking around in chain mail or a plate mail or something, and yeah. you're just throwing rocks and hoping eventually it's going to get through one of the joints. There's a, I think he's still there, but uh, I remember Sheldon Gottlieb. Is he still teaching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is, yeah. I remember him talking. He was my cardiac intensive care unit attending, and for patients who were sort of in the CCU, terribly ill physically, and mm-hmm. he just wanted to talk to them about their diet and how they needed to eat better. And about melocardia, which is his made-up word, which means that we're poisoning ourselves with too much sugar. <laughs> and it drove some of the more, the more senior residents crazy because they wanted to make sure that this person was going to sort of survive yeah. the night. And he really wanted to talk to them. Okay, but what about, what about yeah. your diet? Can we get you eating more healthy? Yeah, that's one of the things that always drove me nuts. I mean, we're always talking about cost in medicine. like, And this kind of leads into one of my next discussions, but we just have so much illness resulting from lifestyle choices where it's like decades and decades of hammering on the body in the the wrong ways leads to people needing this critical care units and the progressive care units and needing to hang out in the hospital and get all the fluid taken off of them for weeks and weeks. Yeah. I used to love talking to the cardiologists about this because you know how I feel about the great betrayer. (laughs) That's what I call the heart on the show. (laughs) Oh, the, the heart is the great betrayer. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's, just, it's a bag of meat that disappoints people. <laughs> but, but it's also the organ that feels love, Dr. Weston. Yeah, that's the brain. <laughs> that's, that's our territory, Dr. Redgrave. And no, we got the brain, we got the soul. You can't, you can't auscultate that. I'm eager to get rid of my stethoscope to a certain extent. But there's not a single person in the cardiac unit that could not have done at least somewhat better through lifestyle change. Yeah. And I think that somehow that message is not driving our practice as much as it should. Yeah, absolutely. And that does bring me to my next point, which is eating disorders as we traditionally understand them, as you described, are bad and lead to really devastating consequences. But I think we have a much more prevalent form of disordered eating in the developed world, which is the obesity epidemic. And I wanted to get your thoughts on why we don't think of that as an eating disorder, why we have, or maybe it has been attempted and I haven't heard about it 
do you think it could be amenable to the same kinds of treatment philosophies that we use for the more acutely dangerous forms of eating? Because presumably anyone can fix eating by doing the same thing we do for someone with, with anorexia. If every person eats the right number of calories in a sort of rational way, they're going to have better health outcomes. But we don't seem to use that approach in an intensive way, even if somebody gets up to like bariatric surgery levels. I think you raise a really important point. I think the associations between being a developed country, you know, between our wealth and our ill health in this particular way are, mm-hmm. are striking. I don't see obesity and eating disorders as quite the same although they both occur in the context of disordered eating, uh, mm-hmm. which is a phrase that you've used a couple of times, which I think is actually an important thing to say. I think one can engage in disordered eating without having an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And I would agree that because obesity is uh, medical morbidity, because it you know it's mm-hmm. associated with so many problems, I think it is appropriate to say, look, this is the result of long patterns of disordered eating. It's interesting... And I'm now, I think the great betrayer, (laughs) I hate to circle back to this, is the brain. Oh, ouch. Uh, That is my favorite organ, sir. Well, mine too, (laughs) surely. But in many ways, patients with addictions and patients with eating disorders and patients with obesity who don't have any other psychiatric problems have been betrayed by (laughs) their brain. Fair point. Okay. So, right, so we are the products of an evolutionary history that, for the most part, existed in, with periods of intense food deprivation, punctuated by the occasional successful woolly mammoth hunt. And so, so really, periods of food deprivation and then and then engorgement, right, on a large food source. And keeping in mind that I am. I am not many things among them an, an evolutionary biologist I'm not an evolutionary biologist but I, but I think it is I think this is sort of a fair praises of this thinking right and so we evolved to hold on to calories mm. and and once we have consumed them to not let them go and our suburban and urban worlds in particular are surrounded by what Kelly Brownell, who is at the Duke School for Public Health, calls the toxic food environment. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I haven't seen it, but there is alleged to be a memo from, you know, a corporate memo from McDonald's, and I'm not picking on them in particular, mm-hmm. but, you know, saying that the goal is to have a McDonald's franchise within four minutes of every every American. Wow. And, you know, that would be my goal, too, if I were trying to maximize shareholder value, I'm sure, from a certain yeah. point of view. But it's led to sort of the supersize wars and where portion size has increased. I think for your listeners who are interested in this, I think Michael Pollan's books, particularly Omnivore's Dilemma, is really interesting. Phenomenal. Yeah, it's a really phenomenal book. And I think worthy of a read. I think there are a number of people who've, who've sort of talked about this. The role of the corn lobby, for example, in shaping the Food and Drug mm-hmm. Administration's approach to advertising or you know around mm-hmm. food and deciding what the food pyramid is going to look like and all these kinds of things so that farm prices would would stay high and so mm-hmm. that you know which I think is you know that's a good <laughs> but mm-hmm. but we now eat a large fraction of our food that is highly processed full of salt and sugar and mm-hmm. uh, simple carbohydrates yeah and 
we are too good. We've evolved too successfully to hold on to those calories. Mm-hmm. So, so sometimes when we think about the, the brain's control of eating, mm-hmm. uh, we think about sort of two systems that work. Our, one is the sort of homeo, so, so-called homeostatic mechanism mm-hmm. uh, regulated by structures like the hypothalamus in particular. The hypothalamus is the thing that keeps us, keeps mammals cooler in hot weather and warmer in cold weather. Mm-hmm. But it also regulates food intake or helps regulate food intake, which is an extremely complicated process. It's probably mostly responsible for this for the homeostatic control of eating. So there's this lovely old little paper where they gave people sandwich bites. They gave them small, maybe it's like sort of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. They gave them small sandwich bites or medium sandwich bites or large sandwich bites. Uh-huh. And then they sort of said, well, just eat until you're full and we're just going to yeah. time you. And the people that ate the small sandwich bites ate for longer and than the people who ate the big sandwich bites you know, the 15-gram sandwich mm-hmm. bites instead of the 5-gram sandwich bites, whatever. So the, the small biters ate, mm-hmm. ate for longer. And when you averaged out the amount of energy that was taken in mm-hmm. in the three groups, it was the same. Those differences kind of evened out. Mm-hmm. And that's, an, that's sort of some evidence to show that mm-hmm. meal size is kind of defended. That's the language that you mm-hmm. use right now. Get, it's defended against even if you take small bites or even yeah. if you take big bites. Oh, it sort of all comes out in the wash. There was more recent study of, um, that was really interesting looking at the effect of supersizing on intake over a two-week period. So these are folks that came in for mm-hmm. meals at, in a food lab. And, and so I think men got, for a couple of weeks, they would get regular portions. And then for a couple of mm-hmm. weeks, they got supersized portions. And some got the supersized portions early and some got them late and so forth. But basically, everybody got some supersized and some regular portions. Mm-hmm. And a supersized day for an adult man was 3,000 calories instead of 2,000. So it was mm-hmm. one, about one and a half times what, mm-hmm. you would, what you would normally eat, which is about what supersized portions are. Uh-huh. Okay. And it turns out that over a two-week period, you can gain like two pounds doing that yeah. if, you, if, you, if wow. you eat these meals. And so in that case, it's not about the small bite, the medium bite, yeah. or the large bite. It's like you can really push people to gain weight if you just give them more food wow. and say, here's your lunch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I think it's very – so in that way, we're not really good at deciding mm-hmm. when is enough enough. You know, we eat the food that's in front of us, and we get used to eating larger amounts. Yeah, it seems like there's just a lot of competing pressures there. Yeah. I mean, you got economic factors, palatability factors. And it is like, uh, I think, I don't know how much Michael Pollan got into it, but one of the things I've seen in my books uh, that I've read about nutrition is just this idea that refined sugar ought to be thought of in much the same way as like refined cocaine. It's not so much the sugar that's the problem. It's that when you raise the concentration to a certain mm-hmm. supraphysiologic point, like more than so much more than we'd find in nature, the brain doesn't know quite what to do with it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes the way sugar gets talked about as if it's a drug, mm-hmm. I think are problematic, but I do think it's certain there is this problem all around us that we see 40% uh, of adults in the U.S., 39.8, mm-hmm. let's call that 40%, <laughs> uh, which is two in five, right, of, of uh, adults in the U.S. are obese. And that's not simply calling people fat. That's saying, that, no, there's a definition of obesity at a certain body mass index, and that's the number of people that are, yeah. that are at that BMI. Yeah, and we can certainly argue the the imperfections of the BMI and all this, but that's something that is medically concerning to me is we do have the all these movements and counter movements about body image and 
like the, this health at every size movement's a little bit concerning because it's like, yeah, everyone should have a right to feel positively about their body, but we cannot just say unequivocally everybody's fine and just be done with it when we know that certain bodies are physiologically dangerous. I mean, we can't say that being extremely large or extremely small is good for you when we know, like, that's just irresponsible. We're just straight up lying to people. I think the point that people like Lindy West would make she wrote a, the book called Shrill that's mm-hmm. been now turned into a TV show. And she, as she says, she came out as fat, which is at some point sort of decided, look, I'm just, you know, I've done all kinds of things to change this. I'm just going to now sort of accept that this is part of my identity. And it helped her have a great deal more confidence. And they actually rebroadcast on This American Life a much inferior podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Touched. Yeah. Uh, recently rebroadcast the, uh, uh, this episode. Um, mm-hmm. w- that was this inter- mostly an interview between uh, Ira Glass and L- Lindy West, and she, and in which she sort of details some of her correspondence with Dan Savage, for whom she worked in Seattle, and who with whom she otherwise got along, but she yeah. she found his sort of comments about the about fat people and the obesity epidemic to be pretty disturbing. And mm. and I think what's interesting is that the battle against one's own obesity can be so all-consuming and so exhausting and demoralizing because we are not, certainly as a medical profession, really good yeah. at helping people with it. Yeah. Absolutely not. That I think, the, so the question is, when there's a toxic food environment, and an ineffectual kind of state of medical treatment. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean bariatric surgery. Yeah. I just mean doctors helping patients. Yeah. When we're not yeah. good at helping patients, how do people sort of live, live a life at that point? Yeah. It's not live a life that is not uh, sort of in a constant state of burden. Yeah. That's not just this, you know, related to the physical state, but also yeah. all this emotional stuff too. Yeah. And that is, that's deep. Cause that's one of the things that I've talked about with, like in the context of eating disorders and in the context of our earlier discussions on obesity. And it is, I mean, as a former obese person myself, like you truly do feel this strong social pressure to like stand aside and not participate in life until you've fixed yourself. Yeah. And that's really wow. toxic. Yes. Like I was really relating to some of the things that the the patients were saying yes. on the eating disorders floor is that they felt that they didn't meet. And I mean, in their cases, there was a lot more going on, but they felt that they weren't, able to meet their uh, opinion of what they should be and therefore they should change something before they can resume their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I listened to that rebroadcasted podcast as well and one Traitor. of the yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sucker for good narrative. Uh, the one of the other women that they interviewed, she was talking about how she lost weight and she noticed that she was treated so differently when she was over obese and overweight versus when she was a normal weight. And that is, I feel like as somebody who is not overweight, I don't even realize like the privileges of being a normal weight in terms of the way that people interact with me and uh, notice me and, you know, speak to me and think of me when they're you know, thinking of doing activities or thinking whether I'll be interested in something or not. That was really powerful to me because I think it it totally points to your point of, yes, we definitely see that there's hard evidence that people who are overweight or obese have a higher risk of 
dangerous consequences down the road and are not healthy. But I think you're totally right in saying that we're not really there yet where we need to be to to treat them well and to figure out how to make their lives better and help them lose weight. I think it's a real challenge. I think rates of smoking have decreased. And one of the ways that's been done, I think, is by a combination of controlling messaging, mm-hmm. right? Like limiting advertising, uh, taxing the product to make it more expensive so people like my grandfather could give it <laughs> up. That, would, that made that easier. Some combination of incentives and, and then some public health information as well. And so maybe that we'll get to that in some way if we can figure out a way to do that. I think it's very interesting to see yeah. what happens you know, if, we can, if we'll yeah. ever do a thing like a soda tax or, yeah. you know. Yeah, and that's a very interesting idea. I mean, going back to what happened when, when we were discussing suicidal behavior yeah. with Paul Nestat, the idea that erecting any barrier you can to a negative behavior can yeah. have yes. some useful yeah. outcomes. Yeah. And, I mean, I do think that one thing that seems really challenging about eating disorders is unlike addictions... I mean, you can go your whole life without using cocaine if you get into a certain environment or if it doesn't appeal to you, et cetera, but you cannot go without eating. Mm -hmm. So you have to find a way to face that in some regard. And that's got to be really, really hard for people who've developed such an unhealthy relationship with it. One final question for you, Dr. Redgrave. We talked about obesity and how we could view that from the lens of eating disorders What about this other type of disordered eating that people like to call orthorexia? People who are overly fixated on being healthy, like eating a whole foods plant-based diet and working out on the elliptical 60 minutes every day and doing weight training three times a week and, you know, running at least two half marathons a year. I think we all probably know people, friends or family members who are really good at staying fit, but then where does it cross the line into it being an issue? That's a great question so the term orthorexia is related to like orthodoxy right the Mm -hmm. ortho refers to sort of a sense of rightness Mm -hmm. and so one of the interesting things historically about some patients with eating disorders is that they were probably overrepresented in certain religious orders there's a whole books written about this, the so-called fasting girls in the Middle Ages who were often in convents. St. Catherine of Siena is perhaps the most famous who died at 33. She purged herself with twigs and ate grass. Wow. And, wow. and interestingly, she knew that what she was doing was a problem, and her father confessor begged her to eat. You know, there, But there was a long tradition in the Christian church of sort of mortifying the flesh, that considering the earthly pleasures of eating was uh, somehow base. Anyway, a bit of a digression. As you very, very nicely described, there are some folks who who have lots of rules for themselves. I mm-hmm. think often they have lots of rules for themselves in many spheres, but but it translates also into lots of rules for themselves about eating and exercise. And sometimes it's based on personality picture that mm-hmm. is sort of perfectionistic and over-controlled and inhibited like that, and sometimes not. And sometimes the the rules are pretty mainstream, like, as you said, organic, plant-based, whole foods diet, and five miles a day running or whatever the rules are, you know, that's by now, at least amongst middle or upper middle class, that's very recognizable, Mm -hmm. that phenotype. But it does cross the line, I think, sometimes. I think I would call it anorexia, but I, and, and again, I think because 
patients with this so-called orthorexia, it can be a little difficult to discern where is where's the line. And I think, and you can see that in all kinds of situations too. So someone who's a very serious athlete and is mm-hmm. very lean, even separate from these sort of concerns about rules or so forth, you, and who might say when you, if you do express a concern, they might yeah. say, gee, I, I'm just, you know, being the best figure skater I can be or yeah. the best dancer I can be or the best jockey I can be. There's an overrepresentation of eating disorders amongst males mm-hmm. who are uh, horseback riders because you have to make weight, yeah. or uh, if you're a wrestler and you have mm-hmm. to make weight. Anyway, so I think there's not a great answer except that crudest way of looking yeah. at it would be functional status, right? Are they able to work and have relationships? Now, their perceptions may not exactly be the same as yours. Yeah. So you might say... Uh, you know, you're not really dating very much, and maybe yeah. that's because you're a little on the picky side, and because you need someone who eats exactly like you, because yeah. you won't eat, you go out to eat at the pit beef place or whatever. <laughs> yes. Anyway, yeah, I think so. We took care of a patient a couple of years uh-huh. ago, actually, who had had anorexia when she was 20, and, um, and then had a healthy life for most of her life and then when she was older really developed lots and lots of sort of environmentally based concerns about food production which Uh are really I think arose from a very sort of high-minded noble place and I think are very defensible many of them but she took it to an unhealthy extreme and actually ended up needing hospitalization Mm. and, and was actually very seriously depressed in addition to having what amounted to anorexia at that point but it was had an orthorexic kind of tone to it. Got it. That makes sense. That makes me think about previous explanations we've had with our psychiatry colleagues who have talked about mood disorders. Like anyone can feel anxious or depressed in their lives, but as long as it's not affecting their ability to do their daily activities and function independently, then it's not considered a disorder. Yeah. And I think... I think that's a good place to sort mm-hmm. of to, to land on. It doesn't mean, again, that if you have yeah. someone who's close to you and you're worried about them, it doesn't mean that your worry is ill-founded, but it's hard to argue that it's a disorder until there's some sort of functional impairment. Yeah. Oh, and that's where I think we lose a lot with this disorder line where I really like the idea of just looking at everything as an axis between flourishing on one end and like just totally falling apart on the other end. Mm -hmm. And everybody's somewhere on that axis. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of, is it important enough to try and drive yourself in that, in the direction toward flourishing on that axis or is it okay to let it ride? I don't know. Dr. Redgrave, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like I've learned a lot and hopefully our listeners will feel the same. And if you have uh, any closing thoughts? No, I just really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about eating disorders. I think any opportunity to have a conversation and maybe help someone who's struggling or who's having a loved one who's struggling, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. So I thank you both. Yeah, that's, that's our hope as well is to just get the word out there. <laughs>